The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. As you are being seated, I just want to give you a final update on our, um, on our fundraising for Haiti. Uh, way back when, when we first shared about the crisis going on in Haiti and some of our brothers and sisters in Christ struggling uh, to feed their children, uh, I had the hope and desire that we could raise $10,000 to send a container worth of food down to Haiti. I wasn't know, knowing if I was being presumptuous or if that was too much to ask for. Um, but through God's grace, uh, we have raised uh, $25,000. And all of that, it gets better. Just wait. Don't clap yet. It gets better. A uh, donor in Illinois is matching all of that. And so $50,000 which is five containers of food uh, that is going to be shipped to Haiti to feed brothers and sisters in Christ that are starving. Now we can clap and give praise to God. So (laughs) truly one of the most encouraging uh, parts of this year for me. And so we praise God for that. Well, um, this is the year that I finally made it happen. I decided this year was the year that my kids We're going to finally watch the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, You know, you don't want to do that too young because you want them to appreciate it. And so I saw it was on TV. I recorded it, and I was hyping up to my kids. We're going to watch this movie. It's the greatest Christmas movie of all times. It's called It's a Wonderful Life. And so we all sat down. I think we had some popcorn. We were getting ready. I hit play on the TV. And as the movie begins to play, all of my kids turn to me, and they go, it's in black and white? And I said, yes, it's in black and white, but great movies can still be in black and white. And it's one of, if not the greatest, Christmas movie of all times. I'm curious of y'all, uh, for, for, for y'all, how many of you is that your favorite Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Not many. Okay, a couple, a couple. If you ever look at the top five lists of Christmas movies, you will see It's a Wonderful Life on there. You may also see A Christmas Carol, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, A Christmas Story, Home Alone, Miracle on 34th Street, Elf is another one. You know, I've enjoyed many of these Christmas movies. I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen most of them, and I enjoy them. And one of the things I notice about these Christmas movies is that they all have the same message for the most part. And and the message is basically this. Don't be a Scrooge. (laughs) Quit whining about your life. You have so many good blessings. Be thankful for all that you have and celebrate all the good gifts in your life. That's basically the theme of all of these Christmas movies. And while that is a great message to remind us to be thankful, it is not the Christmas message. And so I want to propose to you a new Christmas movie. A Christmas movie that you will not find on a top five list. You will not even find it on a top 500 list. But it is a movie that I think more accurately echoes the message of Christmas. 
It's a movie that is uh, several years old. I think it was uh, released in 2008, a movie that uh, really by God's providence I stumbled over in the past few days and I saw the, and, I, and I got clued in at the beginning and I was just captivated by it again and I watched it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is such the message of the Christmas story. Maybe you have heard of this movie. The movie is called Taken. If you have heard of that movie, if you have seen that movie, you may be wondering, now why would that be a movie about Christmas? Well, if you've never seen the movie, let me basically explain, explain to you the premise. There is this uh, ex-CIA agent or, or secret agent, his name is Brian Mills, and Brian has retired from his job for one reason alone. Because he wants to be with his daughter, because he loves his daughter, he cherishes his daughter, and he wants to live near his daughter and have a relationship with his daughter. Well, his daughter celebrates her 16th birthday. Her name is Kim or, or Kimmy. And after her 16th birthday, uh, he gets together with her for lunch. And he's so excited that she wants to get together and, and talk. And as she comes to the table, she pulls out a piece of paper and she says, listen, I want to go to Paris with my friend. My friend is 18 years old, so she, you know, is mature and knows how things work. Um, and we want to go over there to Paris. And he is very hesitant because he knows how the world works. He knows what evil lays out there. And so he does not sign the paper. But because he is pressured by his daughter and by his daughter's uh, mother, he finally decides to sign the paper. And he gives certain stipulations that says, hey, you have to do these things in order to stay safe. And if you do these things, I'm fine. I will send it and I will let you go. And so he takes her to the airport, reminds her of the stipulations, reminds her of how much he loves her and cares for her and sends her off to Paris. Well, she gets to Paris, and she pretty much doesn't listen to any of the stipulations that the father has given to her, and it gets her in a whole heap of trouble. Her and her friend are in this vacant apartment, um, and she is on the phone with her dad, who has been calling her, uh, and she finally picks up, and she is talking to her dad, and she is looking through a window over a courtyard into the other side of the apartment, another window where her friend is dancing in delight. And in that moment, two men break in and bound her. They have come to kidnap the women. You probably remember this if you've seen the movie. The father tells her to go into the bedroom next door and to hide underneath the bed and to leave the phone on. And so she does that. And these men come down the hallway. They enter the room. And she thinks they're leaving. She thinks they're, she's safe. But then there's one left behind who pulls her out from under the bed and she is taken. And then one of those men who captured his daughter, picks up the phone, and you probably remember those famous words. I wish I could say it with his gravelly voice, but it goes like this. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. Brian makes a promise to his evil enemy for the sake of his beloved daughter. Throughout the rest of the movie, it is the story of the love of a father that will stop at nothing to fulfill his promise, to rescue and to save his daughter from the mess that she has gotten herself 
into. He risks his own life to destroy his enemy and take back his daughter, whom he cherishes above all else. Friends, in many ways, this movie echoes not only the message of Christmas, but the message of the entire Bible. Because Christmas is not simply about being thankful for the good things in your life. Christmas is the story of a heavenly father who relentlessly loves you, who promises to stop at nothing to rescue you from the mess that you have put yourself in, to bring you out of bondage and death and bring him back to your to bring you back to himself. This Christmas season, we are pondering God's Christmas promise. Last week we looked at God's promise given to Adam and Eve after they rebelled against God and shattered Salome and were captive to Satan and to sin and to death. Immediately God comes into that broken situation and he makes the Christmas promise. A promise to his enemy, but for the sake of his children. He says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says, he, the singular offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. God makes a promise to his enemy and our enemy for our sake. God, in essence, is saying to Satan, what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare for things like you. I will find you and I will kill you because I'm coming for my children. This not, may not be the Christmas message you thought you would hear today, but it is the greatest message of all. If you would please open up to Matthew chapter 1. Again, last week we looked at God's making of the Christmas promise in Genesis 3.15. This week we will see his fulfillment of the Christmas promise in Matthew 1. We'll be looking today at verses 18 through 25. It's page 807 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. You'll want that. Uh, Keep it open throughout the sermon. We'll be referring back to it. It's page 1019 in the Children's Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife 
but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning confessing that we have become we have become complacent towards the extraordinary. That you, a holy, righteous, amazing God, would come to be a man to rescue us. Fill our hearts this morning with awe and wonder and gratitude at the greatness of your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to a uh, pastor friend of mine not too long ago, and we were just sharing about what was going on in life, and he told me that he was struggling through some things, and when I pressed deeper, he said, you know, I'm struggling with some doubts. And said, okay, what, what, what are your doubts? And he goes, you know, sometimes I wonder if the whole thing is true. This is a seminary-trained man who loves the Lord, who proclaims the gospel, and yet here he is struggling with doubt. And I said to him, I said, man, I wish I could not resonate with that. I too doubt the whole good news of the gospel sometimes. I wonder, do you ever doubt the good news of the gospel? We need to be reminded time and time again that the Christmas story is true because there is a lot at stake when it comes to the Christmas story. And so I simply want to ask, why should we believe that it is true? Why should we believe that Jesus is the promised child from Genesis 3.15 who stepped down into time to rescue us back to God? How do we know that he is the fulfillment of God's unending, unrelenting, and irresistible love? Well, first, we can believe Jesus is the promised child of Genesis 3.15 because Jesus has the promised primogenitors. Now, I'd like for you to believe that I use this word frequently, that I have an expansive vocabulary, but the truth is I think this is the first time I've ever said this word out loud. A primogenitor is simply an ancestor, uh, typically an ancestor several generations before. For example, one of our primogenitors is Adam and Eve. If you look at the first half of Matthew 1, you will see a lot of names. Just look at Matthew chapter 1. You'll see there are a lot of names there. And if there's nothing else that we learn from Matthew chapter 1 is that it teaches us that Jesus's primogenitors, his ancestors, his family tree is extremely significant. Let me show you why. Look at verse 20 again in Matthew 1. It says, but as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David. Now, why does that angel address Joseph as the son of David? Because Joseph's father was not David. All you have to do is look at verse 16, and you find out that Joseph's dad's name was actually Jacob. And so why does he address him, Joseph, son of David? Well, the reason the angel is doing this is because the angel is pointing back 
to Jesus's and Joseph's primogenitor, who is King David, who God made a well-known promise to about a thousand years prior to the birth of Jesus. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 7 for us. Before David had any children, I believe it's going to be up here on the screen. This is what the Lord God says to David, the promise God makes to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. In other words, one of your descendants. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so why does the angel address Joseph as Joseph, the son of David? Because the seed of Adam and Eve, the hope of humanity, the promised child was promised to come through the royal line of David. For anyone to be the legitimate heir of the throne of David, he had to have a human Jewish father who was a descendant of David. You know, even if you look over to Luke chapter 3, you don't have to do it now, but Luke chapter 3, you'll see another genealogy, which is probably the genealogy of Mary, which also goes back to King David. Furthermore, we know that Jesus was from the line of David because that's the whole reason they were going to Bethlehem. If you remember, they were from Nazareth, from Galilee, way up north, and they were coming down because there was a census being taken. And so they were coming down to Bethlehem because, as it says, Joseph was from the house and lineage of David. Now here's the thing is that Adam and Eve and David are not the only ones who are promised that their descendant will be the Messiah, the Christ, the promised child. This promise is also made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells him that from him will become an offspring who will be a blessing to all nations. Galatians 3.16 says it this way. Now the promise were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus was the descendant, the promised descendant, not only of Eve, but also of Father Abraham and of King David himself. This is vitally important to validate the Christmas promise. That's why in Matthew 1.1, look there with me if you would, in verse 1 of Matthew 1, this is why the book starts in this way. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus' primogenitures validate that he was indeed the promised seed of the woman and therefore the one whom the Father has sent to rescue his people. I don't know if you know this, but when a rich celebrity suddenly dies, um, people start coming out of the woodworks saying, I'm related to them. Uh, I'm their brother, I'm their sister, half-brother, half-sister, I'm their child. When Prince died, the artist Prince, or formerly known as Prince, I'm not sure what it was anymore, but, but when Prince died, uh, over 700 people claimed to be related to Prince. Now, there's probably a side story there that we can't discuss with children around, but, but 700 people said they were related to Prince. And so they had to do 
these DNA tests and paternity tests to see if they had legal rights to his fortunes. You see, a person's primogenitures are extremely important in certain situations to validate their identity, their position, and their privileges. The same is true, is more true of Jesus. If Jesus did not come from the line of Adam and Abraham and David, then Jesus could not be the promised child of God. He could not be the one who has come to crush the head of Satan. But in fact, from Matthew's testimony and Luke's testimony and the chief priest's testimony in Matthew 2, and even from the pagan census by Caesar, we know that Jesus comes from the line of Adam and Abraham and King David. Now you may say, okay, well, that's great. He came from the line of King David, but this is a thousand years after King David. Weren't there a lot of offspring of David by this chance? And yes, there were. And that's why the next promise of God is so important because really it narrows the promise down from hundreds of potential descendants all the way down to one. Look with me if you would in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Could you imagine that awkward conversation between Mary and Joseph? Wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall during this discussion where Mary comes to her fiancé, Joseph, who she has never been intimate with, and tells him that she is pregnant. This news must have been crushing, crushing for Joseph, as he was seeing his whole life crash before him. The woman that he loved had cheated on him. They would not have a home together, a family together. Everything had been destroyed. I can imagine Joseph asking Mary, hey, who... Who is the father? And, and she responds saying, well, the dad is the Holy Spirit. I mean, it sounds like a cop-out, doesn't it? A perfect loophole. Joseph knew that there is a natural way God created the world to work. And in order for a woman to become pregnant, a woman would have to come together, as verse 18 says, with a man. And so Joseph, from rational deduction, believes Mary has cheated on him. But he loves her and he is righteous and he is a God-fearing man. And so instead of having Mary stoned to death, which he could have done, he decides to divorce her quietly behind the scenes so she wouldn't be put to shame. You know, if the virgin conception of Jesus is hard for you to believe, be encouraged. It was hard for Joseph to believe as well. To put it lightly, Joseph did not believe because never before in the history of the world had a woman magically become pregnant. But then God intervenes in Joseph's disbelief and sends a messenger to confirm the message that Mary had shared. Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, that his fiancée cheated on him and he was going to divorce her, says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
And then we skip down to verse 22 and we get commentary on why this is so important. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Talking about the prophet Isaiah who says this will be a sign that the Messiah, the Christ, the promised seed of the, of the woman has come. This is the sign. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. God has come to save the day. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. At first, Joseph did not believe that Mary conceived a child as a virgin. It took an angel to convince him otherwise. You know, the virgin conception of Jesus is critically important to our faith for many reasons. I want to give you three reasons really quickly why the virgin conception of Jesus is so important. First, it's because it narrows down the candidates on who is and is not the Christ, right? If Isaiah says that the one who is going to be the Christ, the promised seed of the woman is going to be born of a virgin, that pretty much reduces the pool down to one person. The second reason why the virgin conception is vital is because if the father of Jesus is the Holy Spirit, then it means that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus has these two natures, God and man. He is fully God. He is fully man and yet remains distinct. These natures remain distinct in him in the one person of Jesus, meaning that Jesus could bridge the gap between God and man. He could be the peace child between the two parties. And so it's also important that Jesus was conceived of a virgin so that he could be both God and man. Finally, the virgin conception is vital because Jesus had to be sinless and unblemished and morally pure to accomplish God's promise of salvation. If Jesus came from the seed of a sinful father like all of us had been, then Jesus would have been born a sinner. You see, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are natural born sinners. Let, let me put it this way. A fish is not a fish because it swims. It swims because it is a fish. That is its nature. The reason why we are sinners is not because we sin. We sin because we are natural born sinners, because we are descendants of Adam at the very core we are sinful. Romans 5 puts it this way. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Jesus had to have a virgin conception so that Jesus could be born pure and sinless. And the good news is that Jesus was not only born pure, he remained pure throughout his life. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our sin, our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had to be born pure and sinless and remain pure and sinless to take away our sinfulness and our impurity. Because if Jesus was impure or, because, or became impure through sinning, then he would not be able to take on our impurities and our sinfulness. He would not be able to make us righteous and pure before God. Let me illustrate it this way. 
This past summer, uh, my family and I, we went out to Yellowstone, and we were staying in a campground that was about 20 minutes away from the closest shower. Um, And if you've ever been in such a situation, it really gets more and more miserable as the days go on. And so, you know, we're there and you know it's really bad when you're like, man, I can't even stand being around myself. I smell so bad, right? And so one day we decide to go over and you have to pay for a shower and we pay for it and we get in and it was like the most wonderful thing in the entire world. We had this pure, warm water that could wash over us and wash our impurities away, wash our filth away. But that was only possible if the water was clean. If the water was pure, I mean, nobody goes to the muddy Mississippi to take a bath to get clean. If you go there, you'll just get dirtier, right? You need something that can absorb your impurities and take it away. In the same way, Jesus Christ was completely morally pure. And so he could take on all of our impurities, all of our sin, and wash it away through his blood to make us righteous and pure before a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, For our sake the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had to be born of a virgin and pure to accomplish the gospel of God, to take on our impurity and give us his righteousness. There's a lot at stake for us. And the truth of the Christmas message. Righteousness is at stake. Salvation is at stake. Eternity is at stake. We believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Christmas promise in Genesis 3.15 because Jesus had the promised primogenitors of Eve and Adam and David and Abraham. Because Jesus possessed the promised purity conceived and born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. But finally, because Jesus accomplished the promised purpose of God, the greatest Christmas gift. Look at verse 21 with me. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. The angel says this to Joseph in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then down to verse 25. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, And he called his name Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the name Joshua, which means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. And what the angel tells Joseph is that Jesus' primary purpose, the reason that he is coming into the world as a baby, is to accomplish the Christmas promise that God had made in Genesis 3.15 to save his people. And so here's the cool thing. When you say the name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, you're not only speaking this child's name, but you're actually speaking his purpose, his mission, which is to save. Now, why was this his primary purpose? Why was this his primary mission? Why wasn't Jesus' primary mission simply to come and be a moral example? Why wasn't his primary purpose to come and just to teach us how to love one another? Or like the Christmas movies, why didn't he just come to teach us to be more thankful for all the good things we have in our life? Well, the reason is because God knows that salvation from sin is your greatest need. You see, Christmas, in part, is a reminder of how bad our problem of sin is. 
Our problem with sin is so bad that God could not just send a good teacher. God could not just send a prophet. God had to send his only begotten son, not just to teach us, but to save us. This is how desperate our condition is. This is how completely incapable and powerless we are of saving ourselves. God had to send his own son to save us. You know, Christmas is what makes Christianity unique to every other philosophy and every other religion. In every other philosophy and every other religion, they simply see God as this cosmic Santa Claus, excuse me, as this cosmic Santa Claus who is sitting up in heaven and, and tallying your good deeds and your bad deeds, seeing if your good deeds outweighs your bad deeds, because if it does, then you're on the nice list. But if it doesn't, then you're on the naughty list. Maybe this is who you believe God to be. But this is not the God of the Bible, and this is not the God of the Christmas promise. You see, the Bible tells us that all of us are on the naughty list. Christianity is the only religion that can honestly admit that. Because the good news of the Christmas promise that God has made is not simply that he would send a teacher or a prophet to tell us how to live, but that God would send a man that God would become a man to save us from our sin. This was Jesus's purpose. This was his mission. This was even his name. That's why in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. How does Jesus save sinners and crush the head of Satan? By taking our sin upon himself, by paying for it in full upon the cross, by raising from the dead to give us newness of life, and ascending into heaven to prepare a place for us to live forever and for always. I've shared this with you before, I think, but in my house we have a, uh, we have a, we have a tradition when it comes to Christmas. So we open our gifts as a family Christmas Eve because we go be with uh, the in-laws on Christmas Day. And so Christmas Eve Eve, the night before we open the presents, as I'm tucking, tucking my kids into bed and cuddling with them, uh, I ask them this question because they're thinking about the gifts that are coming the next day. What could it be? They're excited about those things. And so I ask them the question, what do you deserve? And they know how to answer it now. Uh, either they'll say, I deserve nothing, or they'll just say, I deserve God's wrath, okay? Which you may, man, like, why is this at Christmas, right? But, but then I'll say, well, well, why then, if you deserve nothing, if you deserve God's wrath, why do you get these gifts? And the answer is Grace. See, my kids do not get Christmas gifts because they deserve them. They get Christmas gifts because I love them and because God loves them. And not only that, to be honest with you, it is my joy and God's joy to extend the gift of his grace to them. And so let me ask you, are any of you here today just overwhelmed by your sin, crushed by your failures, dismayed by your inability to conquer habitual sin in your life. The good news of Christmas is not that Jesus came to save good people, but Jesus came to save sinners. If you're here today lacking the joy of Christmas, it's probably because you have forgot the, the message of Christmas. You have forgotten the depth of your sin 
and the greater depth of God's grace and love. You see, Christmas is nice news for those who are confident in their moral pedigree. But for those who clearly see the holiness and beauty of God and contrast it with the filth and wickedness of our hearts, Christmas is not just nice news. It is the greatest news of all. That Jesus came and fulfilled the promised purpose of God to rescue his children and bring them back to himself. Let me end with this. In that classic Christmas movie, Taken, after Kim has been uh, rebelled against her father, been abducted and goes through uh, misery that, that I can't even repeat in this room, what we see is the love of a father who goes through anything and everything to rescue his daughter. He even incarnates himself into the evil world that she is trapped in. And he risks his own life to pursue her and to rescue her back to himself. And at the pinnacle of the movie, the father enters the room where he finds the captor's arm around his daughter, Kim's neck, threatening to fatally hurt her. But then the father crushes the head of a captor. Not, not with a heel, but with a bullet. And as her captor falls to the ground, his daughter runs to him, sobbing in tears, melting into her father's arm, feeling completely unworthy and embarrassed of how she has betrayed her father. And she says to him, Daddy, and he calls her by name, says Kim. And then they're just in his arms, sobbing in disbelief. She says, you came for me. You came for me. And he says, I told you I would. Friends, the good news of Christmas in Matthew 1 is not that your life is better than you think it is, and you need to stop whining and be more thankful. The good news of Christmas is that God has come for you just as he said he would in Genesis chapter 3. And at the cross, he has crushed the head of our captor to set us free and to bring us back to himself. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen in God. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this Christmas season, we don't just want to like it. We want to be overjoyed overjoyed by a God who has not given up on us, overjoyed by a God who is true to his promise, overjoyed by a God who incarnated himself into our mess, into our misery, to rescue us back to yourself. Lord, as we turn to the table, we are reminded at the cost that you did have to pay a ransom, and the ransom was the Son of God, that he died in our place, that we could have his 
righteousness, his purity before you, Lord, so that we could be rescued out of our captivity and back into your presence. And so, Lord, as we take of these elements, let us receive them with thanksgiving and ponder anew what our God has done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.